Hey, let's pray. Dear Lord, we uh, thank you for this day, and we thank you for an opportunity to come together as a family, um, so undeserving um, of the grace that you show us and the love that you show us. And I pray specifically that your word today will be exactly as I just said, your word, um, that you would be able to um, somehow speak through me um, and all that you've uh, taught me and going through the scripture that we're looking at today. And um, that in the end, we could gain a better understanding of who you are and exactly what it means to be a relationship with you. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, how's everybody doing? Good. So let me explain to you how this, I kind of, you know, here we just kind of make it up sometimes as we go. I talked to Duke this morning. I was like, when are we doing announcements? He's like, I don't know. When do you want to do them? He said, hey, let's do them at the beginning. I said, hey, I don't care when you do them. So we did them at the beginning. Um, whenever we go through like a sermon series, normally Brian kind of like lays out some ideas and throws some things out to some of us. And then he says, you know, anybody interested in doing any of these? And um, sometimes I kind of like look at the list and I think, oh, that one kind of interests me. Um, you know, so then I, you know, volunteer to teach on that. Well, with this list, it was a little bit different because what I did is I looked at the list and I thought, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick the things on the list that I really am bad at, that I really stink at, which actually was everything on the list, but the ones that I really stink at, you know what I mean? Like the top two. Um, and that's kind of where I went with it. So it's been kind of like humbling, and you're going to hear stuff for the first time that we've been kind of working on for like weeks, and it's just been a real convicting message for me personally. Like, I'm glad I picked it, but I'm kind of not glad I picked it. You know what I mean? Um, but it was the right thing. So uh, for those of you here last week, you know that uh, Brian kicked off. We're doing a series on the Beatitudes, and he kind of kicked that off. I have absolutely zero idea what he talked about um, because we were back with the kindergarten through second graders and we don't have it up on the website yet, so I didn't listen to it. So hopefully God takes care of it, doesn't he, every time. So there was actually no pre-planning in this. But, so we're talking about the Beatitudes, um, which are the opening to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he kind of like pulls his disciples aside and he actually teaches just the disciples. And I think to keep it in context, we need to remember with these Beatitudes that we go over the next few weeks, that's who he's talking to. He's talking to his followers. The word Beatitude is actually a Latin word that is Beatitudo, which means a condition or a state of supreme blessedness. Okay? Um, and the Beatitudes found in Matthew chapter 3 through 12 are statements that all begin with the word blessed. In the, the ESV translation, there's actually 112 references to the words bless, blessing, or blessed. And none of them actually connect with material prosperity or with perfect circumstances. And I think a lot of times in all culture, that's the way I use the word blessed. You know, have a blessed day. We think like we want good things to happen to somebody as far as prosperity or circumstances. But typically in the Bible, the word blessed is actually connected with poverty with trials, or with spiritual benefits of faith in Jesus. A blessing is anything that God gives that makes us fully satisfied in him. It's anything that draws us closer to him. It's anything that helps us let go of the temporal and to hold on tightly to the eternal. And it often is in struggles in life, it seems like, and in trials, 
that we're best able to actually do that. The, the word blessed means the state of being fully satisfied in God's favor. And that's kind of the working definition that we're going to use for bless. Okay? Is the state of being fully satisfied in God's favor. Um, the Beatitudes are meant to convey states of being for people who are flourishing in God's kingdom, his followers. And they are not simply an attempt to comfort those of us in bad circumstances. And they am by no means are a roadmap or some sort of a um, condition for salvation and to earn um, entry into God's kingdom. Um, with each statement, Jesus actually affirms a state of blessing that actually already exists for those that are in the kingdom of God. And he actually, Jesus describes how God blesses and how he takes care of his children as they strive to live in a way that pleases him, even whenever we're put in uncomfortable or painful circumstances. Some of the Beatitudes are fairly straightforward, in my opinion. Um, the one today, I think, personally, is a little bit confusing. And I think as we kind of looked at lots of resources, and sometimes you look at other sermons and what the people say about it, and I think in a lot of cases, it's really taken totally misinterpreted and taken out of context. So that's my prayer today, is that we do God honor in studying his word, in the context that he put these words, and what he really has to say to us about it. So our verse today is Matthew, one verse, one verse, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the word poor is found in the New Testament nearly 40 times, and it can be found in the Old Testament over 120 times. And depending on the context, it's typically translated with words like poor, poverty, or humility. The term poor is never paired with in spirit, the phrase in spirit, anywhere else in the Bible except in this verse. And to talk a little bit about being poor and what that looks like as far as our walk with Christ, A.W. Tozer puts it this way, the way to a deeper knowledge of God is through the lonely values of soul poverty. So what is soul poverty? What is poor in spirit? What is poverty of spirit? Well, it's a sense of powerlessness in ourselves, a sense of spiritual bankruptcy and helplessness before God. It's a sense of moral uncleanliness or personal unworthiness before God. And it's a sense that there, if there's anything with a sense of purpose in life, that it totally comes from God's power and his grace. That's what poverty of spirit is. In other words, being poor in spirit is a position of, it's a spirit of humility before God. And it makes sense that Jesus actually chose to start um, this, you know, to his Sermon on the Mount with these words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because without recognizing, without recognizing our humble position before God, it's really impossible for us to accept all the other Beatitudes that we're going to be talking about. And it's really impossible for us to accept the truth and the reality, the weight and the grace of the gospel, the good news. So if we're called to be poor in spirit, what we want to look at today to start is what keeps us from being poor in spirit. Okay? And we're going to look at one answer in two forms, and that's pride. 
okay, which I am absolutely the king of, okay? Um, our first form of pride that we want to look at today that keeps us from being poor in spirit is arrogance, self-reliance. And this is my form right here. This response sees poverty of spirit as a sign of weakness. It sees dependent on God as a crutch. And in our society, people generally, in general, we don't think that crutches are bad things, do we? I mean, if you, because they're necessary. If somebody has a limitation for walking, they use a crutch. So why is it that a crutch is bad when it comes to Christianity? Because I think a lot of times we think this. And the answer is, if Christianity is a crutch, then it's only good for people who have what? Limitations and cannot walk on their own. But it's offensive to our self-sufficiency to see ourselves in that light. We don't like that idea. We like to think that we've got it. I do at least. Here comes Christ who doesn't bring a cure for our disease, but a crutch. He's a stumbling block. He's an offense. Because, see, he takes the disease that we all suffer with, which is helplessness, and instead of curing that, he actually makes it, he makes our acknowledgement of it the key to our salvation. We have to say we're helpless. This is proven us in Mark chapter 2, where we read, When Jesus heard this, he told them, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. The bottom line that our pride leads us to believe the lie that we do not have limitations that require a crutch. Arrogance says the real joy, fulfillment in life are to be found in the pursuit of self-reliance, self-determination, self-confidence, and self-esteem. So what happens when a Messiah comes along who proposes to replace self-reliance and self-determination with God-dependence? When a Messiah comes along that wants to replace self-confidence and self-esteem with God-confidence? Well, John Piper says this, that Messiah is going to be a threat to the religion of self-admiration. That religion has dominated the world ever since Adam and Eve fell in love with the image of their own independent potential when they saw it reflected back to them in the eye of the serpent. You will not die. You will be like God. See, becoming poor in spirit goes against the grain of our self-affirming culture. And parents and teachers and counselors and politicians and advertisers, they all conspire to tell us what? How great we are. They tell us that we can do anything that we desire and that because of our self-reliant greatness, we actually have the ability to face whatever challenge that comes their way, okay? And as a teacher, and we have lots of teachers in this room, um, you know, we're often asked to sign um, at the end of the school year every year in some cases with some kids, to actually sign a book um, for parents for their sons and daughters. Does anybody know the book? Yes, there we go. Oh, the places you'll go, right? And my teacher friends, how many of you have signed this book? Come on, there we go. Okay, 
Now, I'm not going to rip on it because some of you have actually done it or are doing it with your kids, and it's not a bad thing because you sure don't want to tell your kid you're a loser, right? Okay? But here's how it works. Parents ask teachers throughout the school year at the end of the year to write a, you know, something positive for their child in this book on one of the pages, and then the parent holds on to this book every year, and they give them this book when they graduate, right? It's like a keepsake. And don't get me wrong, like I said, there's nothing wrong with doing this, but I want to read you a quote from that book and to how it affirms um, where our culture's at with self-affirmation. Dr. Seuss, here we go. I'm going to do my best. Dr. Seuss is really hard to read, by the way. Here we go. You have brains in your head. You have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself any direction you choose. You're on your own, and you know what you know, and you are the one who will decide where to go. In our culture, we are bombarded by this message, right? And it's very easy us to respond in arrogance and to develop, and I've got this attitude when we respond to Jesus' call to be poor in spirit. When we adopt the I've got this attitude, which I tell you what, personally, I have formally adopted in my life. It's a constant battle, right, to not say this in situations for me. And what does this lead to? For me personally, it leads to control issues. Feeling like I have the ability to solve any problem or to do anything. And actually getting mad or anxious or frustrated when I actually can't solve a problem. Being unwilling to accept help and accountability from others. I'm the worst. I'm okay with helping other people as long as you do it my way, right? But receiving help is a whole different ballgame. Maybe becoming a workaholic. When we say I've got this, we can hyper-focus on things like wealth and prosperity and security. And for me personally, being judgmental. It's very easy in that arrogant attitude of I got this to be judgmental and critical to other people around me because it's very simple. All you need to do is what? You need to suck it up. You need to suck it up and be like me, right? Be like me and you've got it. When we really look at this I've got this kind of attitude approach to life, it leads to anxiety. It leads to self-destruction. It leads to emptiness. And it leads in the end to a feeling of regret. And I think this is very evident in our culture today, right? At all the mental health and the substance abuse issues that plague our communities all over the place. We can really take it back to this. And with the increase of all media types, right, it, we cannot get away from the lie that if you try hard enough, that you can do anything on your own. And in the end, it will actually bring you satisfaction. You know, Braden preached a couple weeks ago, and he preached on Solomon, who was looking back on his life at all the good things that God had given him and all the great things he had accomplished. He looked at wisdom and pleasure and possessions and accomplishment and work. And in the end, what did Solomon realize? None of it really gave him satisfaction, that there was really no hope in any of those things. 1 Peter chapter 5 says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with what? with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When we live a life of arrogance and self-reliance, thinking we've got it, we actually reject the grace of God, and we are not able to be poor in spirit.
The second form of pride, which to be honest with you, I don't struggle with this. Matter of fact, I look at it and I don't understand it, right? However, my wife does, so I fully understand it, right? Um, is pride not in the form of arrogance, but pride in the form of false humility. This perspective reflects an undervalued and inferior sense of ourselves. Its disposition says things like, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not brave enough to handle this situation, so I'm not even going to try. This response at first actually appears to be humble. It appears to be humility. But if we really look at it, it's actually the most subtle form of pride because what's it doing? It is actually referring all the attention back to who? Back to us. It looks at oneself's power and ability. And it's actually, and I love this quote, was said, it is pride borrowing humility's clothes. It reveals a person who is paralyzed by a sense of fear or guilt or inadequacy or unworthiness or uselessness. And when we live in this society that promotes what? Self-importance, self-reliance. The person who struggles with insecurity easily develops not a I got this attitude, right? It's actually just the opposite. It's a what? I can't do this. I can't do this. And what does that lead to when we deal with this? That leads to consistently talking negatively about oneself. The perpetual, sorry, you know what I'm talking about? Like when somebody just apologizes to you over and over and over, or if you're one of those kind of people. For us, I got this people, we're like, stop telling me you're sorry, right? Fishing for compliments by putting oneself down and then not being able to even accept the compliments once they come. Not participating or volunteering to help because we're worried about what? Looking stupid. We're worried about not being able to succeed. Maybe we avoid leadership. Maybe we avoid accountability. But in the end, what's it lead to? It leads to anxiety. It leads to self-destruction. It leads to emptiness. It leads to a feeling of regret, which are the exact same results of pride in the form of arrogance. Okay? So what is the, the goal of pride disguised as false humility? Those goals are to conceal our fear of what others think of us, to hide our doubt in God's power and wisdom, and to cover up our disobedience toward God when he actually asks us to do something. And though it may mimic humility, this approach actually says, it's about what other people think of me, God, not about what they think of you. It actually says how other, view, how other people view me is more important than how God views me. It said God is not able, and he doesn't actually even know what he's doing. It says the grace of Jesus really isn't sufficient after all, and his power really isn't made perfect in my weakness. It says I really don't believe that he will stand with me on the waves, so I'm just going to keep my rear end in the boat. As believers, we allow concern of our own comfort and our pride to keep us from stepping out in faith and actually experiencing the joy and the peace that comes from trusting God. And we see a great example of this in the Bible with Moses. You see, when God came to Moses to actually give him a mission to lead his people, 
Here's how it went down in Exodus chapter 4. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent. Either am I in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. The reason that God was angry at Moses is not because of Moses' humble assessment of his own abilities. Right? What's, what Moses said was true. The problem is Moses' lack of faith in God's ability. God doesn't declare here either self-esteem to be the problem with Moses, does he? He doesn't say to Moses, hey, Moses, stop putting yourself down. You are capable. Man, you got this. You are eloquent. And he really doesn't say to Moses, you have brains in your head. You have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself any direction you choose. You're on your own and you know what you know and you are the one who decide where to go. Does he? What does he say? God says, stop looking at your own unworthiness. Stop looking at your own uselessness and instead look at me. I made your mouth for goodness sakes. Don't you kind of think God just wanted to say like, shut up, right? I will be with you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to teach you what to say because my power is made perfect in your weakness. So if pride is the opposite in the form of arrogance and false humility, if pride is the opposite of being poor in spirit, what does it actually mean or look like to be poor in spirit? What does it look like to have godly humility? And thank goodness we have the word of God to provide us with examples and with just direct what God thinks about it verses. See, godly humility sees God for who he really is. In Jeremiah 10 we read, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great in might. Godly humility knows that God owes us what? God owes us nothing. And godly humility acknowledges that. Even at our best, we are unworthy servants, and we are completely dependent on his mercy. Romans chapter 3 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Ephesians chapter 2, for by, the great, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Godly humility trusts that God knows what he's doing and that our understanding is actually flawed and limited. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Why? Because our understanding is flawed and limited. Godly humility believes that God and only God has the power and authority to accomplish whatever he wills through us. Ephesians chapter 3. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more 
than we might ask or think. It's not us accomplishing anything. It's God accomplishing things through us. Godly humility is willing to sacrifice personal comfort and recognition and instead is motivated by making God's name great and bringing him glory. Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And godly humility says, I am low, you are high. I am small, but you, God, you are big. So by your power, I will go, I will speak, and I will do whatever you ask me to do. Not because of me, but because of who you are. Psalm 16 says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Now, for somebody that struggles with prideful arrogance that we just talked about before, what's this mean? What well, means for me personally, Kevin, stop trying to blaze trails. Stop thinking that you know the best way to do something. Step aside. Set your eyes on God. Let him lead you and follow him wherever he asks you to go. For a person that struggles with the form of pride with false humility, what does this mean? It means stop allowing yourself to be paralyzed. Stop making it about you. Set your eyes on God and don't step aside. Step forward and allow him to lead you wherever he is going to lead you. In both cases, the result is following him wherever he leads you. This is a posture of true humility. This is godly humility. So, blessed, blessed are those who are aware of their inadequacies, their guilt, their failures, their helplessness, their unworthiness, and their emptiness. Blessed are those who don't try to hide these things under a cloak of self-sufficiency or use them as an excuse to disobey or ignore God's direction. Blessed are those who are honest about their shortcomings and are actually grieved by those shortcomings and are driven to the grace of God. Blessed are those who look forward to the opportunity to be able to say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, not because it's about them, but because it highlights what God is doing in them. Okay, And Paul serves as a great example for us in Scripture on this. And in my personal opinion, you know, Paul kind of gets a bad rap sometimes because he talks so openly and he gets labeled as being really arrogant. And sometimes people even say that he's really full of himself because he makes statements like in Philippians 4, he says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul, practice these things and God, the God of peace, will be with you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, Be imitators of me as I, am in Christ, as I am of Christ. But maybe Paul really isn't being um, arrogant here. Maybe Paul is actually exercising godly humility. Maybe he is so confident. Maybe he's confident enough in what God is doing in him and through him to be able to actually point to his own life as an example of not what he's doing, but what God is doing in his life. 
And Paul is demonstrating godly humility by, first of all, acknowledging who he is without God. And Paul's clear. I'm going to read you two verses, but there's a lot more in the Bible. Romans chapter 7 says, it's Paul talking, I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, I am the foremost of sinners, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience for an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul is very clear in being humble, having godly humility to acknowledge who he is without God. Paul also acknowledges God's grace and his power to accomplish whatever God wants to accomplish. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that the transcendent power belongs to, not us, to God and not to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Who's Paul drawing attention to here? Not himself, but what God is doing in him. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. Paul was able to walk forward in God confidence because he had seen and he had experienced some incredible things, right? He had seen God's grace and his power in his life to such an extent that Paul had no, no doubt, no doubt that God was going to finish his work in him. And Paul also was very quick to encourage others that we are supposed to have that same confidence, which I think scares us sometimes, Right? We get a little scared because these words do seem very bold. But here's what Paul says in Romans 15. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. A great example of this confident hope in the Old Testament is David in the story of David and Goliath. Right? We see a young man who has every reason to be paralyzed by fear and insecurity as he stands on the battlefield. Imagine this. I think I've read they thought, you know, Goliath is some dude. He's like between like seven foot and eight foot tall. You got little David. You got the Philistines on one side, the Israelites on the other. And they send out their two best to face each other. You got little David. You got big Goliath. And let's see how it goes down in 1 Samuel chapter 17. The Philistines said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds in the air and to the beasts of the field. Now, there you go. you got an eight-foot dude standing at you, and that's his first words to you. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. In what appeared to be an impossible feat, David actually was willing to move forward, right? And not be paralyzed with fear, 
or insecurity, but he had confidence. And he had confidence not in his own abilities, but he had confidence in the power of God. Obviously, our best example of true humility, godly humility in the Bible is Jesus. Jesus modeled being poor in spirit by making statements like in John 5, I can do nothing on my own. John 6, I've come down from heaven not to do my own, but the will of him who sent me. John 8, I do not seek my own glory. And Paul describes Jesus' ultimate example of humility in Philippians when he says in chapter 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is godly humility. And we've talked a lot about that. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does it mean to have poverty of the spirit? What does it mean to have godly humility? And what we haven't really focused on today is the last words of the Beatitude. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if we back up a few verses in Matthew chapter 5, we're reminded where Jesus is and who he's talking to when he shares this verse. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus knew that things were going to get really tough for the disciples. As they were going against the grain of a worldly culture. And Jesus knew that these guys had given up their worldly possessions, their plans, their priorities, their pleasures to follow him when he called them. And Jesus knew that they had humbled themselves and they had actually trusted him, even if, you know, these guys didn't exactly know what they were signing up for whenever they decided to follow Jesus, but they trusted him. And the disciples could have allowed their own pride, maybe arrogance and thinking they knew better, maybe insecurity and thinking they weren't worthy to keep them from following Jesus. But by the grace of God, they actually displayed godly humility instead. Because Jesus was actually teaching the disciples here that when we follow him and we completely humble ourselves before him and acknowledge him as our Lord and King, that we are blessed because we get to participate in the kingdom of heaven both now and forever. You know, many of the kingdom's blessings are actually here on earth that we get to enjoy, but many of them are not yet here. And being a part of God's kingdom, which is that being a part of God's kingdom is the kingdom of heaven, means being under the authority, the protection, and the provision and the care of his kingship. Matthew chapter 6 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All these things meaning he's going to take care of us. 
He's going to give us anything that we need in his kingdom. Being part of God's kingdom means having the privilege of interacting with God, with Jesus, and having access to the power of God's spirit, his Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2 says, For through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in him, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for the Spirit, for, um, for God by the Spirit. Being part of God's kingdom means we get to be a part of a royal family now and forever. A royal family that we won't choose to not be a part of anymore. Right? <laughs> Romans chapter 8 tells us the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, providing we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And being a part of God's kingdom means future entrance into the eternal kingdom. All right? This is one that's not here yet. 2 Peter chapter 1. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And thank goodness, God gives John a little glimpse of what this future kingdom will look like in Revelations chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among his people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. So, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we follow him, and completely humble ourselves before him when we acknowledge him as our Lord and our King. We are blessed. Why? We are blessed because we get to participate in the kingdom of heaven, both now here on earth and both in times to come for eternity. And that should be encouraging to us as believers. That should be very encouraging. And it also throws out a challenge to us to live a life that is poor in spirit where we're not looking to our own abilities, 
but instead we're looking to God's abilities. That we're not looking in the power of ourselves or feeling we don't have any power ourselves, but we realize that God, it is he who possesses all of that power. And the benefit is, in living a life like that, we get to experience part of heaven here on earth as being a family of believers, and we have the promise of eternity. When I was a little kid, I always remember thinking like, why would anybody want to be a Christian like why they're an adult? Like I always thought like, wouldn't it be more fun to just like live a life and do whatever I wanted, right? And then just like accept Christ on my deathbed and still get the benefits of heaven. But that narrow-minded childlike view, right, misses the whole big point that as believers in Christ, we are part of the kingdom now. And there are so many things that God has given us on this life to make it way more meaningful and that bring honor and glory to him. And if we're not believers, if you don't have that relationship with Christ, you get to experience those advantages here on earth by being his follower. And in the end, we get to spend eternity with him, right? Um, I'm looking forward to that. I mean, I like my life here, and sometimes I think I like my, my, I like my life here a little too much. And that I don't long for being in community with God. It's not about just like streets of gold. It's not about in this eternal kingdom. It's to be with God every second of every day in his, I know we're still with God in his presence here, but to be in physical presence with God, which is overwhelming, which is overwhelming. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that when we humble ourselves, which can only be done with your help through you, but when we possess that godly humility like we saw in Jesus who humbled himself so much that he was willing to die for us, that you bless us by giving us the kingdom of heaven. Blessings here on earth, but also the blessing to one day spend eternity with you. In Christ's name, amen.